The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York here on WGBB in Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here. I'm taking you through the first hour on this, the third day of September 2023, Labor Day weekend 2023. I hope you guys are having a great weekend out there, having fun, staying safe. Our engineer, Brian Graves as always, is with us right across the way, and I'm happy to welcome you aboard tonight. Glad you can be with us. Leading off tonight, we will speak to the former catcher and MVP of the 1983 World Series for the Baltimore Orioles. Rick Dempsey will join us. And in the second half, we will welcome in the man who caught Henry Aaron's 715th home run in the Atlanta Braves bullpen, Tom House, author Coach, sports psychologist, the guy's done it all. He's going to join us at 8.30. So sit back, relax, get comfortable, enjoy the show tonight. We've got some great people, some great sports talk and memories up ahead. Before we start, as always, I'd like to talk to you about social media. We have Facebook. We're out there. We're on Facebook. Check that out. Give us a look. Give us a like. We are on LinkedIn, and the shows are posted out there as well. You can also follow us. On X, which is Twitter, folks. Don't think I'm giving you any directions to any uh, uh, subversive website here. It's Twitter, which is the new X. And at B. Donahue, WGBB, you can follow me. And at WGBB Sports Talk, you can follow the station. And if you miss a show, don't worry. They're all out on the website the next day, and you can listen to them at your leisure. Well, our first guest... He played for 24 seasons as a catcher in Major League Baseball from 69 to 92, most prominently for the Baltimore Orioles, where he played for 10 years, and he was a member of the 1983 World Series winning team and, of course, the MVP on, uh, in that series. He was known for being one of the best defensive catchers of his era, and in 1997 he was inducted into the Baltimore Orioles Hall of Fame, I'd like to welcome to Sports Talk New York tonight, Rick Dempsey. Rick, good evening. Hey, thank you very much for having me. This is uh, quite an honor, so I'm looking forward to this. It's great to have you with us, Rick. Now, you made your Major League debut late in the 1969 season. It was uh, for the Twins, managed by Billy Martin. Uh, Give us a little impression uh, of Billy Martin back then. Well, you know, Billy was a player's manager. That's how you referred to a manager like him. You know, he, as long as you went out on the field every single day and gave 100%, uh, the batting averages and the RBIs and the home runs didn't matter because he knew what you were capable of doing in the long run. But Billy really enjoyed being with his teammates. I mean, I know that Billy at times would go out at night with the guys, you know, maybe have a few drinks uh, and stuff, you know, talk a lot of baseball. Um, and he'd argue with the, the guys a lot, too. And, 
you wouldn't be surprised that every now and then Billy might get in a little shoving match with somebody on the team once in a while, too, which just kind of opened everybody's eyes. They oh, wait a minute. Here, this is the manager of our team. Billy was a lot of fun to play for. I played for him with Minnesota for a couple of years, and then I played for him as a New York Yankee. And, and I, I loved him, and I respected him, and he was just a lot of fun. I learned a lot about baseball and New York and the fans because uh, you know, Billy, as you know, played there for a long time. Mm-hmm. But New York is a special place. It really is. A, and I've missed it ever since uh, I was a Yankee. I got my chance once the Yankees traded me to Baltimore, but I'll never forget my Uncle Sonny, who was head of the uh, Yonkers uh, Trotters track out there, and I I met a lot of great people out there, and I just really enjoyed it. Once he went over to the Meadowlands, it was a whole different animal out there, but uh, I still maintain a lot of the same friends that I, I met through my Uncle Sonny out there, and I got a lot of cousins and everything, too, that, that are still in that area, the Mongellos. And so uh, it, uh, it, I, I really did appreciate being a Yankee. Outstanding. Can I, can I ask you a favor, Rick? I'm getting some heavy feedback from <laughs> It's killing me. Oh, okay. You know what? It, it's probably my own hearing aid. So I'll take Oh, all right. My, okay. And I'll, I'll go right to the phone. Okay. Let me do that. You with us, Rick? I am. I'm there sorry. I have to turn the hearing aids off and get to turn the phone off. That's okay. <laughs> Thanks. Well, you, you played for the Yankees. You you, uh, you backed up Thurman Munson, and I believe Verdon was the manager then. Uh, how is it working with Thurman Munson? I, he, he was the biggest influence on me of any player that I ever played with. Wow. I loved his style of play, hard-nosed guy behind home plate, and a great clutch hitter on top of that. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons, and the only reason I was probably came to the Yankees, is that Thurman had hurt his shoulder a little bit, and he was used to throwing underhanded to second base. And amazing how many guys he threw out like that. But it was still, you know, a, one of his vulnerabilities. And so I think they brought me along because I could throw a little bit. Um, I know backing him up, um, I would come in late in some ball games and throw out some runners. I got 16 out of 22. So basically that was my job. But nobody ever really wanted Thurman out of the lineup. He was just too good a player. He and Bobby Mercer were the two best players that we had on the team. Great ball players. That's true, Rick. Yes. Now, after three and a half seasons, the Yankees make a blockbuster deal, and they send you to the Orioles. But uh, you weren't real happy to leave New York, were you? No, I wanted that ring. Now, yeah. Is there any better uh, thing that you can get in sports as a New York Yankee World Series ring? <laughs> right. I, I don't think. I don't think so. I got traded to Baltimore, and yes, I finally got my opportunity uh, to play every day for for Earl Weaver. Very very tough manager, but I think probably the best manager in the major leagues at that time. Uh, I really, even though it seemed like I was always arguing and fighting with him all the time, but still one of the best managers that, that the game ever saw and definitely the best manager I ever played for. Now, uh, there was the World Series in 79 uh, against the Pittsburgh Pirates. The Pirates, of course, led by Hall of Famer Willie Stargell. And uh, that was a big disappointment dropping that series with the Orioles, wasn't it, Rick? Oh, my God. And, yeah. it, and you know what? I take responsibility for that because 
when they introduced all the players in game one, we went up to home plate and shook hands with Earl Weaver and then down the line. But I looked over at Chuck Tanner and I said, Chuck, listen, we'll get this series with over in a, in a hurry if every time you get somebody on, you want to try and steal. So he tried to steal <laughs> three times. Alexander threw him out. Parker threw him out. And Marino, I threw him out. And then all of a sudden, after we're down, or we're up three to one in that series, they stopped running. And that gave them an extra out to work with almost every inning. <laughs> so they got the momentum back again, and things started to fall in place for them. They came back and swept us the last three games to win the World Series. Mm-hmm. And it taught me a lesson. Keep your big mouth shut. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, uh, so anyway, we were very lucky to vindicate ourselves in 1983. Thank God we got that opportunity. That was a great ball club, that 1983 Baltimore uh, ball club. Oh, I know. We played against an all-star team in Philly with Mike Schmidt and uh, Joe Morgan and Pete Rose uh, and and those kind of the guys that were there. Um, uh, we knew it was going to be a tough series, and we lost the first game two to one. Scotty McGregor was pit- pitched a great game, but we just couldn't get him any runs. And then all of a sudden, we got hot. And uh, the last uh, four games of that series, we won four in a row, and we just shut them out. But I, I can remember when we were up three to one against the Phillies. There, you could hear a pin drop in that clubhouse that everybody was remembering what we did. In Pittsburgh in 79, we ended up blowing that series, mm-hmm. but we were all just very quiet and very focused, and thank God uh, um, I actually hit a home run in that World Series <laughs> and, uh, and uh, had a, a pretty good offensive series. I, as you already know, I got lucky enough to be voted the, the most valuable player of that series. That um, uh, it, was, uh, it was quite a time for all of us there, and what a load off our backs after blowing that 1979 World Series. Exactly. What a, what a great uh, feeling that must have been in 83. Of course, Rick Dempsey, the MVP of that World Series, not known as an offensive catcher, more of a defensive catcher, uh, calling a great game behind the plate, wins the MVP award, uh, one of only six catchers to have won that award, and com- coming around with the bat, too, which, w- which was uh, a, a real big thing for the ball club, Rick. Well, if I could say one thing, you know, when I became uh, a Baltimore Oriole, Earl Weaver took me out on the field. They said, you see that white line right next to home plate? I go, yeah. He says, I want both of your feet right on that white line. And you see that yellow foul pole down the left field line? I want you to hit the ball around that foul pole. (laughs) If you could hit me some home runs, you'll play every day. Well, you know what? I was a darn good hitter up until I became a Baltimore Oriole. And then it was all about my defense because I just – was not a good hitter anymore. I, mean, I had good playoffs and good World Series. I think I ended up second all-time behind Yogi Berra, the great Yankee catcher. But other than that, for season batting average, I think I hit 260 or above a couple of times, and that was it. But I was never the hitter that I should have been at the major league level because when you go up there and just try to pull the ball all the time, mm-hmm. you hit a ton of Ground ball's the shortstop, and you strike out, and you pop up too much. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're exactly right, Rick. Now, uh, what I well, maybe I don't want to talk about it. It's, it's the 1988 season. You're with the L.A. Dodgers. Uh, you're on another World Series team, 
But that was the series that, uh, well, actually, my, my New York Mets was supposed to go all the way that year in 88. And that, that uh, the back-breaking home run by Mike Socia off Doc Gooden uh, at Shea Stadium really put the nails in the coffin of the Mets. And uh, it, it was a real, real tough series. But uh, you had a great series uh, against the Mets, too. Well, you know, it, it, it turned out that way because Mike Sosha got hurt in the second game of the World Series, and I ended up catching the rest of the way. Mm-hmm. But we were a platoon uh, ball club anyway from the very beginning. We only had five guys on the team that played regular. So there was a lot of mixing and matching, and Tommy Lasorda did a fabulous job uh, with the ball club. And then, then Oral Hershiser, it didn't hurt to have him in the rotation. He ended no. up being the Cy Young Award winner, 59 consecutive scoreless innings. He, I, I've caught 16 Cy Young Award winners during the course of my career, and let me tell you, none of them ever had the kind of stuff that Oral Hershiser had at the end of that season. I know that the Met fans did not want to see him come in in relief in that second game, I think it was, <laughs> or, and, uh, and do what he did. Uh, but we had lost 10 of 11 or 11 of 12 games to the Mets during the course of the season, and we managed to put it together at the end thanks to Mike uh who hit that home run, but mm-hmm. everybody on that ball club, as Bob Costa said, it was the worst World Series team on paper in history in that in that game. And so, uh, but we just had guys that knew how to play. Mickey Hatcher, myself, Danny Heap, um, Franklin Stubbs, all of these guys. We called them the stuntmen because they were the guys that always got put in the game when. When it was out of control, you know, and Tommy didn't want to press the regular guys, but we we developed this attitude about coming from behind, and that's really what it was. We had so much confidence that we could get the job done whenever we were given the opportunity. Tommy Lasorda did a great job managing that ball club. He kept everybody. He motivated everybody. He was such a great motivator, he could talk the devil out of hell. I don't know why they haven't ever asked him to do that. <laughs> You you had the good fortune, Rick. Uh, we're speaking to Rick Dempsey tonight on the program of uh, playing for some really great managers, Hall of oh Fame managers, and uh, th- th- that's uh, something that not everybody has the good fortune to do. Now, <laughs> I, w- I want to ask you, Rick, about uh, you were renowned, of course, for what we we known as uh, the rain delay theater performances. Oh, geez. Blame that on Sparky Lyle. Okay, go go ahead. We're sitting in the outfield. uh, Sparky would throw balls into the grandstands, even though we got fined every time we did that back in those days. And then he said to me one time, he says, you know what? He says, I want to run out there on the tarp, and and I want to slide around and then, you know, slide into home plate. I think that would be so much fun. Well, at the time, I thought, gee, yeah, that'd be great, Sparky. I'd love to see you do it. Well, after I got traded to the Orioles, we're, uh, we're in Boston on the very last day of the season, and we're tied for second place, and the Baltimore Orioles had won. So I got uh, to throw in the balls up in the grandstands, and the people in Boston, great fans, just like Yankee fans, they're, they all really totally love their teams, and they're a lot of fun to play in those two stadiums, but there was a ball out on the tarp when they covered it up right before game started. It started to rain. And I ran out there and picked up that ball, and I was starting to just throw it. And then the organist started playing raindrops are falling on your head. <laughs> and I led everybody in the song. And 
Then I left the field. Well, the people didn't want to go home. They were in love with that baseball season. They wanted to see a second-place playoff uh, mm-hmm. right here between, uh, you know, uh, the Orioles and, and the Red Sox. So uh, they were yelling at me, "Come, we want Dempsey, we want Dempsey. So Richie Dower came in with a pillow, threw it in my shirt and says, you got to get out there and do something. I said, oh, well, I'll do the pantomime of Babe Ruth calling his home runs. I went out there, called my home run on the third swing and went around the bases and slid and everything. Everybody <laughs> just had a great time. And uh, so that's how that began. Then I ended up doing it three times in the following season. But I, I hung it up after a while. <laughs> we weren't winning a lot of ball games late in my career there. So uh, fooling around like that would always get you in trouble. Right. You you want to make sure you're on top when you're doing stuff like that, Rick. Yeah, absolutely. There was a time, I remember, that you uh, did a little spoof of uh, your teammate Jim Palmer. Uh, by wearing jockeys on the outside of your uniform, uh, you know, giving a little nod to Jim Palmer's well, famous commercials. <laughs> uh, that that actually was not me, but when I did oh. the pantomime of uh, Robin Yount hitting two home runs against the Orioles in a playoff the year before, Sammy Stewart was the guy that ran out to the mound and put uh, Palmer's uh, underwear on. You would never catch me dead in Palmer's underwear. Are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, we got Rick Dempsey with us tonight on the show. Now, now uh, you went into coaching and managing, and uh, as I said, you had uh, great managers to try to uh, emulate the styles of. You, you had Earl Weaver, Billy Martin, Tommy Lasorda, Tell us a little bit about each one and how you inculcated their particular styles into yours. Well, um, I tried Earl Weaver. My very first year, uh, I was managing for the Los Angeles Dodgers, A-Ball, and Bakersfield, and we did not do too well. At spring training, we won every game. But when the season started in that California league, you know, you're facing a lot of major league guys who are down rehabbing and all that stuff. You and we, I don't know if we won 20 ball games the whole summer, but uh, it was miserable. At the end of the season, uh, Fred Clare, the general manager for the Dodgers, called me in and said, "Listen, Rick, uh, we didn't sign Earl Weaver, and we don't want you to be like Earl Weaver. We want you to be like Rick Dempsey because I believe in you." And I want you to go back to AAA ball this year and manage the game like you know it. I said, okay. So I went to Albuquerque and, and managed AAA ball. We won the Pacific Coast League title. So <laughs> I couldn't beat Earl Weaver. There was only one of a kind like him. You know, he put on shows out there going after umpires, and that just wasn't <laughs> my game. But I did learn the game from Earl Weaver and the way he managed the game. Manage for the name on the front of the jersey. Don't manage to protect the name on the back of the jersey. So mm-hmm. um, I developed some pretty good ball clubs. As a matter of fact, I managed AAA a couple of years for the New York Mets. Right. And that's when Bobby Valentine was there. And they said I didn't have any good players, but they ended up taking like 10 guys both years I was there. And they did pretty good. Corey Lytle was one of them. He was a great pitcher for the Mets uh, at that time, too. And I know he died in an airplane crash in in New York there. But 
I'll tell you, he was just one of the many uh, really good pitchers that I was fortunate enough to send the Mets at that time. Now, uh, you, you call yourself... Go ahead. go ahead, Rick. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. Uh, I, I saw doing my homework that you call yourself a blue-collar catcher. Now... I, I know you guys had your Orioles band on the field singing old-time rock and roll from uh, Bob Seger at Memorial oh, yeah. at the legendary Memorial Stadium, and uh, you, you really endeared yourself to the Baltimore fans by being that blue-collar catcher. Well, I was never uh, afraid to go and have fun with the fans. I mean, that's right. what it was all about, you know, and... I might not be playing all that well, but I'm telling you, I played for a great ball club with Eddie Murray, Ken Singleton, and all the great players we had, Renicky Lowenstein, you know, Cal Ripken. You know, when you have players like that and pitchers like Palmer, Flanagan, McGregor, Steve Stone, you know, you had guys that went out there, you were always in the in the game. So, you know, I, I just like to keep the, the guys loose. Richie Dower was the same as I was. We always like to keep the guys in a good mood and everything. If we lost a couple games in a row, we didn't want everybody moping around. So uh, we were pretty energetic most of the time. And, and I really loved interacting with uh, Baltimore. And that era uh, at Memorial Stadium, um, it was late in Brooks, Rob- Brooks Robinson, Boot Powell, Frank Robinson. Those guys dominated baseball for a long time. Mm-hmm. The, the new team we had with Eddie Murray, Cal Ripken, um, Doug DeSensei, and, oh, and players like that, we had our own personality. They called it Oriole Magic because we come from behind in any ball game and end up winning no matter how many runs we were down. It was all about confidence and believing in your team and, and so we developed a new attitude, but in a lot of respects, it was the same thing the Oriole fans were used to, winning. And uh, we were very happy to be part of that. That's certainly true. And and uh, the uh, attitude and atmosphere at Memorial Stadium was something that uh, they tried very hard, very hard to, to duplicate. But that that was a legendary ballpark. Now, I, w- I want to ask you, Rick, Rick Dempsey's with us tonight on the program, about your new initiative, the Baseball Warehouse. Tell the fans a little bit about that. Well, um, today, one of, the, one of the best businesses in the country, especially during uh, baseball season and in the fall, is um, teaching young players how to play the game. Um, so I opened the Baseball Academy Warehouse uh, in uh, Columbia, which is close to the airport in Maryland. So I, I hooked up with a guy named Matt Morris, who had been very successful um, at putting together these uh, summer camps and fall camps uh, for younger players and getting them out for clinics and things like that all the time. So he asked me if I would join him on it. They call it Rick Dempsey's Baseball Warehouse. So... Um, I just kind of went along with everything Matt said because he was the template for success in that business. Mm-hmm. And so I was looking forward to getting back working with younger players again and showing them some of the things that I thought that maybe uh, the players at the major league uh, level with the analytical approach to certain positions um, has really changed the face of baseball. But the young people, they don't know that. But 
the fundamental parts of the game of you can't overlook that. You've got to you've got to teach them, you know, as outfielders what to do with the ball once they catch it, how to hit the cutoff man, when to hit the cutoff man, what base to throw to. Infielders the same thing. Turning the double play, coming across the bag on the inside and getting those double players because the double play is a pitcher's best friend. You know, and the fundamentals of catching a ball, going to your right, going to your left, the footwork and all that kind of stuff. And then you get into the catching. Now, that's one area that analytics should stay away from because now you see a lot of catchers going to one knee all the time and a lot more balls are making it to the backstop. Right. And when that happens, you're seeing a lot of players getting in scoring position at second or at third base with less than two outs or scoring from third base. You just cannot do There's no benefit to it. If you want to give a low target, you know, uh, you ought to be able to do that. You ought to have the flexibility to do that from a regular crouch position of the old-time catchers. And you're certainly going to throw a lot higher percentages. Right now, the average uh, amount of runners that are being thrown out at second base is under 25%. Under 25%. If I threw 25%, uh, at the major league level, they would have sent me home in the first two weeks or the first six weeks of my first year. Because <laughs> you had to be able to stop the running game, and I could do that. But I just totally believe that those pitchers need those outs. So you cannot be, you can't afford to be making errors and and allowing guys to steal. Because the minute you go to one knee, especially what knee you go down on. Hitters, I mean, base runners are alerted to that, and some of them steal easily. You can't let that happen because it changes. I watch too many playoff and World Series games, and they're all decided by one and two runs in most cases. That it, if balls are getting to the backstop, then I, I, as a catcher, I'd have to accept that responsibility because you really limit yourself being able to go right and left to block those balls. And you got to be able to handle that. I used to tell my pitchers, throw the ball in the dirt. He'll swing at it anyway, and I'll block it. That's how Steve Stone uh, won 25 games. His first game, he was in trouble, men on second and third at the end, winning three to two, and uh, two strikes on a right hander. And I went out and I said, throw the curveball in the dirt. He said, hell no, I'm not going to do that and have it go to the backstop and have the winning or the tying run score and the, the winning run go to third base in less than two outs. I said, listen, Steve, you don't throw good enough to throw the ball by me. So, you know, <laughs> especially the curveball in the dirt. So he threw the curveball, he struck the guy out and popped the guy next guy up. He ended up winning 25 games. Right. So a lot of things that the pitchers aren't learning to do is how to pitch when they're ahead in the count, you know, because they're afraid to throw the ball in the dirt because catchers don't block it. They right. slap at it and, you know, keep it in front once in a while, but they don't block the ball. So. No. They need to make a change at that one position. You're exactly right, Rick. That is uh, part of what the kids will learn. At uh, I'll give the the uh, website out if you don't mind, Rick. It, it's oh yeah, that for sure. The Baseball Warehouse, all one word, thebaseballwarehouse.com, and that's uh, run by Rick Dempsey, Matt Morris, and a tremendous staff down there in, in uh, Columbia, Maryland. And, uh, Rick, we, we thank you for uh, stopping by tonight, speaking with us, and uh, reminiscing about the good old days. Uh, it's been an honor and a pleasure. I, I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us up here on Long Island. Again, folks, check out thebaseballwarehouse.com. And, Rick, thank you so much once again. 
My pleasure, but I just thought we were just getting going here. <laughs> well, we could, we could bring we could bring you back, Rick. Yeah, there's still plenty of I'm other stuff to talk to about. I, you know, there's, there's no better fans. I love the fans in Baltimore, and there's, there's no better fans than there are in New York. Ah, you're, you're not kidding. <laughs> it's incredible. I love the, I love New York still. <laughs> well, well, we thank you, Rick, and I'll, I'll stay in touch with you, and we'll get you back. You got it. All right, sir. Thank you very much. That is Rick Dempsey, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we will welcome in the great Tom House. So just stick around, folks. You're listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. Hey, we are back. We are back with Sports Talk New York here on WGBB in Merrick, Long Island, New York. I hope everyone is having a wonderful Labor Day weekend, Labor Day 2023, the end of summer already, the end of summer 2023. It's time to move on. Let's do that. Uh, Just want to say it's nice to finally see uh, what New York Mets fans have been asking for since uh, really it became evident that the season was kind of slipping away. Uh, th- that is getting a good look at what the four uh, young prospects would look like in the Mets lineup together. Uh, I have no trouble with who was dealt in the so-called, if you want to call it a fire sale, whatever you wish to call it. The two Hall of Fame pitchers they divested themselves of uh, proved not to be the answer. And let's face it, I think those two guys are finished. You have uh, Verlander getting shelled the other night against the Yankees and uh What's his name? Scherzer. <laughs> Max Scherzer kind of getting hurt again, uh, saying he, he left the game at cautionary because of a, uh, of tightness. Tightness, that's what it was. That he didn't want to turn into a strain. That sounds so familiar to us Mets fans because that happened almost every time the guy pitched. Uh, the, the plan to have those two at the head of the rotation it was uh, a nice dream, but uh, as we know, it didn't come true. The future, uh, I think, lies in the off-season moves they're going to make and in uh, Francisco Alvarez, Brett Beatty, Mark Vientos, and Ronnie Mauricio. It was real exciting uh, to see Mauricio get his first major league hit and his first major league at bat. 
And I, I think the fans, and I know I want to see what we have in these kids. It's it's like the excitement of homegrown talent like Pete Alonso a couple of years ago making his debut at the big club uh, several seasons ago following uh, his rookie season. We, we need that again here. And uh, also as a sidelight, it's been exciting to watch DJ Stewart, a, a, a career major minor leaguer, emerge uh, to, to have a good uh, season towards the end here as well. Well, our next guest, he's a former relief pitcher, an author, a coach, a sports psychologist. He has been called the father of modern pitching mechanics and a professor of throwing. This man, uh, one of the first to blend scientific-based pitching study into methodologies for pitchers. He has led elite coaching to become scientific instead of kind of guesswork. He has developed a model that is focused on quantifying the movement in each athlete's motion then using the drills and exercises to maximize accuracy and velocity and minimize strain on the players' bodies, which we were just talking about. I'd like to welcome to the show tonight Tom House. Tom, good evening. Hi, Bill. How you doing? We're doing just great, Tom. I hope you are doing the same out there on the sunny West Coast. Yes, we are. Just finished a barbecue, so I'm full up ready to talk. Ah, outstanding. All right. Now, as, as a sports psychologist, you worked with, with Tom Brady and Drew Brees, and I, I find that fascinating. Well, you've done your homework, which is it's kind of fun to be able to have a setup like you just did. What I do, I call myself a performance analyst. Uh-huh. I have I, I have a Ph.D. in performance psychology, but that's just one of the four pillars that we look at when we work with athletes, whether they're little leaguers or Hall of Famers. And the bottom line is there's four things that an athlete has to be really good at to have a career in the game, and that's biomechanics, functional strength, nutrition and sleep for recovery, and then mental-emotional management of stress and anxiety in the sport. If you have all four of those, you've got a four-legged performance table that holds up pretty well. Right. Okay. And I want to touch base with you about some of your roots, Tom. Uh, just as with Tom Seaver, the great uh, New York Met who we lost a couple of years ago, you're a USC guy. And right. And you also went on to the Alaska the, uh Alaska Gold Panthers, which Seaver also pitched for. Yeah, I was one year behind Tom Seaver at USC. Uh, I actually got to play with him one season, and I did follow him. Uh, he was a little ahead of me getting to the big leagues because, obviously, he was a superstar talent, and I wasn't. But I followed him up to Fairbanks with the Gold Panthers mm-hmm. and then into pro ball. He was actually, I don't know if you know the whole story, but, he was drafted by the Braves, right? In, and you know, for whatever the reason, uh, they had to throw his name back in the hat, and that's how the Mets got him. Something, so, something uh, went our way finally. <laughs> yeah, well, way back when, and it looks like I think you're making a turn for the better. I can kind of tell that you must be a semi-Mets fan. Oh, you yeah. had it nailed. Living they're, they're making that transition. <laughs> they're they're literally making that transition. And what pleased me looking at it from afar was you have ownership that's not afraid to pull the, pull the trigger on decisions that didn't work out. 
That we have, and I'm looking forward to an off season and making some moves so uh, we get back to the top of the heap, Tom. Uh, also, what I found out about you, talk about doing my homework, Tom, is that you were an extra in The Graduate in 1967, and you also appeared in several episodes of Hogan's Heroes. Yeah, well, one of the advantages of going to the University of Southern California was that the, a lot of the movie and film people, their kids went there. So what they ended up doing, like the fraternity I was a, par- a part of, they'd call and they'd say, hey, we need, you know, seven guys, seven bodies down at such and such a lot. <laughs> or we need, you know, ten guys down at Malibu Beach to do the beach blanket bingo with an excellent shuttle. Yeah. they just call for, for extras. And two or three of my fraternity brothers actually had dads that were in the film business. So we kind of had an insight to all that extra stuff. That is great. I think that is fantastic. Now, the Atlanta Braves brought you up to the big leagues after uh, letting Hoyt Wilhelm go. Now, folks, this shows you how old we all are around here, is that we not only remember Hoyt Wilhelm, we saw him play. So... We're living on we're living on the edge here. And Tom was brought up after the Braves uh, got rid of Hoyt Wilhelm, the Hall of Famer, and you really went through the Braves system pretty quick. Well, uh, again, I was drafted by the Braves in in '67. I signed, and uh, first year I, I actually because I could throw strikes, I actually made it as high as Triple A ball my first year. But I really wasn't ready, and it took me another two and a half seasons before I actually learned how to pitch at the AAA big league level. And a, a little side story that no, I'm going to share this with you that not a lot of people know about. I was the one that told Hoyt Wilhelm that he got released. I walked into, the, I went to the clubhouse early on the day. I got called up. I walked in, and Hoyt was the only one in the clubhouse. And I walked up, and I said, Hoyt, you know, tough luck. You know, what are you going to do next? And he said, what are you talking about? I said, I tried to say, never mind. Oh, uh, yeah. But as luck would have it, he you know, was released by the Braves, went to the Dodgers, where he ran into this guy named Charlie Huff. And I got to be Charlie Huff's pitching coach 20 years later with the, Tex- with the Texas Rangers. Great story. Yeah, another knuckleballer. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that the ba- the baseball world goes round and round. It's, it's a nice little closed chain environment. It is. It's a it's a small world, Tom. You're exactly right. Now, with all your degrees at USC, you you uh, graduated. You got an MBA, uh, second master's degree in performance psychology, as we said earlier, and then a doctorate in sports uh, psychology, and uh, you went on from there. Uh, as, as we said, folks, Tom House is our guest tonight. I just want to find out uh, what kind of a manager was Eddie Matthews, Tom. I'll tell you what. Eddie hated pitchers. <laughs> and was, as, as a manager, he was probably the hardest manager to play for of any of them that I was exposed to in the, the 19 years that I played. Wow. But because he delegated... He really didn't even like to talk to the pitchers. So the pitching coaches that he had got to be really, really close with the, with the pitchers themselves. I actually had my best year in the big leagues pitching for Eddie. 
And the only time I ever talked to him was when he was taking me out of the game or putting me in a game. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I, I figured uh, I'd, I'd never asked anybody about Eddie Matthews. I wanted to find out. Hall of Famer, uh, great ball player, but uh, questionable kind of personality, which is which is uh, what you reinforced here. Now, I, I want to ask you, Tom, April 18th, 1973. I don't know if you remember that day. Against the, <laughs> <laughs> do you remember that day? As, yeah, you, you, you I, as a batter, right? You, you take it away. You, you you describe it for the folks. No, it was it was actually I was in the bullpen. Uh, it was in Atlanta. It was the night that Henry Aaron hit his 715th to break um, Babe Ruth's record. And the funny thing is that that's kind of the, the good news is that's the highlight of my major league career. The bad news is. That's the highlight of my baseball career. <laughs> so yeah. it, 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 we were all separated out in the bullpen. We had our little 10-yard territories that we agreed that we wouldn't cross into somebody else's space. And downing through a 3-1 fastball out over the plate, and Henry hit it right to me. If I would have stood still, it would have hit me in the forehead. Everybody talks about what a great catch it was. So I caught it, ran it in, and gave it to him. And that that literally was one of the special moments of my baseball life. Now, did you have any interaction? I I, I find these guys kind of fascinating. Uh, you go to the Baseball Hall of Fame and you see uh, a, a large mural of Henry Aaron uh, rounding the bases, and as soon as he hits the shortstop, these two clowns uh, come out of the stands, and uh, they're forever uh, indelible in baseball history because these guys ran on the field to congratulate Henry Aaron. H- have you ever had any interaction with those guys? Oh, yeah. Henry, uh, until he passed away, every 10 years he'd have a get-together with anybody who could make it. We, we kind of relive that night. And one of, the, one of the kids, I call them kids, one of those young men right. is still alive. Still alive. The other one passed away. I, don't, I can't remember their names. But in today's game, that would never happen. They would never make it, you know, to the field. No. So that was, it was what, what Henry chasing the Big Bruce record was right along with Roger Maris chasing Dave's record in New York. It, was, and it went national, and that, that PR that publicity and everything that went with it. There were death threats, there were everything you could possibly imagine. It was the beginning of superstars having to be in hotels under different names, mm-hmm. you know, not being able to ride the team bus. It was a learning experience for everybody. But it was something that I think was good for baseball. It was, you know, good for everything that was involved. And that was right in the crease. You know, you and I talk about being around, kind of being elder statesmen. But I, I hit the crease between old school, which is what I would call the Warren Spahn era, mm-hmm. and new school, which would you get, you know, the tail end of Sandy Koufax and the beginning of what we're seeing with the analytics going on right now. Right. So you talk about being at the right place. People are kind of, I think, behind my back and as well as my face. They're calling me the Forrest Gump. Of baseball, I just happen to be, you know, I seem to be at the right place when good things are happening. Yeah. And so I've been, you know, 
my career was a marginal career, but the things that I was associated with were all Hall of Fame stuff. I would I would accept it, Tom, uh, to to be involved in in that particular situation, that particular event in Major League history. I'll take it. I would say that that that's pretty good. And uh, what what did Henry say to you when he when he gave him the ball? Well, he was a man of, of short short sentences. He basically said, "Thanks, kid." Yeah. I'm not, at, at that point in time, I'm not even sure he knew who I was. Oh boy! But yeah. It ended up being a really good friendship. Um, Dusty Baker was my roommate coming coming through the Brave organization all the way through, and he and Henry were best of friends. And because of my relationship with Dusty. I got to know Henry and his family pretty well. So again, for for all all different reasons, it was a very blessed time of my life. Now I had read somewhere uh, that Bill Buckner wanted the ball. When did, did did he jump on the fence and and ask for the ball? Oh yeah, he climbed the fence like the kids are doing today. You see, <laughs> he was like, "Give it to me, give it." To me. I said, "No, I got it. I'll see you later." Right. And that's the last thing I remember. I remember him just missing the ball. And then there was a big fish net on an extension that swished by my face coming from up above in the stands just as I started to run toward home plate. And that's pretty much all I remember until I got to the plate where he was hugging his mom. Right. Oh, what a, what a great, great event to be involved in, Tom. Tom House with us tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, moving on to the Red Sox, uh, Don Zimmer was kind of uh, – a, a stick in the mud to you, and uh, I, I found that out from other other ball players too. Uh, that Don, Don Zimmer uh, wasn't exactly a people person. Well, if you were good, if you won, he loved you. Yeah. And if you were if you were marginal and you weren't very good, he didn't want to have a whole lot to do with you. And I was one of those marginal guys that didn't contribute. I kind of stunk it up. I was a pretty good pitcher in Atlanta. But I really stunk it up in Boston for no other reason than I wasn't as healthy as I should have been. But I just didn't do the job that, that Zim wanted to get done. So I wasn't high on his list. I understood. Okay. Now, when you became pitching coach for the Rangers, how did you introduce uh, what people back then would call uh, unorthodox ideas uh, to do with pitching co- pitching uh, pitchers? And... Uh, you had them throw footballs, which I thought was interesting. Well, you have done your homework. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, if, if I'm remembered for anything as a pitching coach, it would probably be for throwing a football. And I would like to take credit for the idea, but I can't. I actually got it from the trainer with the San Diego Padres, Dick Dent, who had his pitchers because running is boring for the pitchers. So he had his pitchers running pass patterns to get their running in. And what we discovered, that all the guys with the great arms that were always healthy could spiral the football and love to throw the football. The kids that couldn't throw a football, couldn't make it spiral, were the ones that couldn't throw strikes or were never healthy. So we do, we figured out intuitively you can't throw a football wrong and make it spiral. And because it's heavier than a baseball, there's some conditioning involved, some strength training involved. And then later on, when we actually put the computers on it and did the research, it turns out to be a cross-specific training device. 
and it was the beginning of the velocity balls, the heavy and light balls that you see all the kids working on today to get their average velocities right now in the big leagues is 93 miles an hour plus. When, when I first got to the big leagues, the average fastball was only 86. So we've come a long way in the last 30 years. Yeah, that's, that is for sure, Tom. Now, you also worked you worked closely with Nolan Ryan, and uh, during his Hall of Fame speech, he uh, called you out and gave you uh, a lot of credit for, for his success when he was with the Texas Rangers. Well, he's a very gracious human being. He would have been a Hall of Famer even without our interaction. But what happened when he joined the Rangers, he got firsthand experience with all the new research all the science-based data that we were capturing, the beginning of the analytics area, era, and he took advantage of it, and he was actually statistically a better pitcher from age 39 to 47 than any other time in his career. So I kind of became a filter for taking all the new stuff, and he called it, he called it country and I called it computer, and the bottom line between the two he ended up being the hardest guy to get a hit off of in the history of the game. Through the most no hitters, and obviously in my mind, for hard throwers, was one of the best pitchers in the history of baseball. That is certainly true, Tom. That that is a great point. Also, Randy Johnson, you worked with. Well, I I got to know Randy. Randy was another SC Trojan, and I right. got to see him got to see him a little bit before he signed with Montreal. And then I'm sure you've read about the story when I was with the Rangers and we went in to play the Seattle Mariners. Nolan and I got our workout in really early one day, and Randy was out doing early work. He was having trouble throwing strikes. And as he walked by, I said, hi, how you doing? And he said, I'm, I'm doing terrible. I'm you know, having trouble throwing strikes. And that's when Nolan said, well, why don't you come by tomorrow? Tom and I are going to be working a little bit. We'll chit-chat a little bit and see what happens. So that interaction, uh, Randy gives us credit for, gives me credit for actually turning his career from a hard thrower that couldn't throw strikes into the Hall of, Hall of Fame pitcher he became. Wonderful. Uh, that, that's a feather in the cap, Tom. That certainly is. Now, you, you did a book with a, a great title, and I'll tell the folks about it, uh, The Jock's Itch. The fast track private world of the professional ball player. And that, uh, recounts how professional athletes can have a difficult time adjusting to life outside the sports world. And you all, you cite uh, the great quote, and I, I love to use it myself when I can. Jim Bouton's famous line from Ball Four that you spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, but in the end, it turns out that it was the other way around the whole time. Uh, how, how was it writing that book? Well, it was interesting. I actually did my <clears throat> my thesis for my Ph.D. on what they call the terminal adolescent syndrome. When athletes make a living playing a game, they're very they're only accepted conditionally for what they do, not who they are. So it's a tough transition when you leave the sports world and join the real world not to be, uh, to assume that everybody's talking to you because you played baseball, not because they have any interest in you as a person. Mm. So that's what the story was all about. That was what the book was all about. 
so it was the, basically the general public version of my dissertation. Understood. Okay. Now, you, you ended up going back to USC and uh, to work with Rod Dato out there as pitching coach for the Trojans. I did. When, when I was fired, uh, excuse me, when I was fired by the Rangers, I had a choice. I had offers to go back and be a pitching coach in the big leagues. But I felt it was time for a little more research and to see if I could get into the game a little deeper and make a difference in a larger scale than just working with 10 guys, you know, for a year in, in, in one setting called the big leagues. So I, I signed a 10 year deal. I went up there and we researched the heck out of everything. We had a biomechanics lab. We worked on functional strength. We, we did nutrition and sleep for recovery. In other words, that's kind of when the science was introduced, not just with biomechanics, but with all phases of the game and pretty much what you're seeing today. So, yeah, I was up there. I stayed up there uh, nine and a half of the ten years I was going to, um, but I was diagnosed with Parkinson's, and I retired from that, came down, and I still live in Del Mar, the San Diego area. And what I do now is I have the National Pitching Association, Mustard, and 3DQB are the three organizations that I work with to get out, and I get my teaching fixed from that. And I continue to do research on a smaller scale here out of my home. Gotcha. I, I want to talk to you about Mustard, uh, Tom. In September 2020, you and performance uh, mental performance coach Jason Goldsmith launched uh, a new app which you guys called Mustard. Now, uh, some of the investors involved with that were Drew Brees and Nolan Ryan. Tell the folks about Mustard. Well, what, what one of my goals is, has been since day one is to try to get kids the same information and instruction that elite superstars get in the big leagues. Yeah, we actually call it the democratization of information and instruction. And that was the goal of Mustard. And it's turned out it's really going to, it's really becoming uh, a moving force in the game. If you're a parent of a 12 year old and you have a cell phone, you can film, film your son or your daughter, send it through Mustard to the cloud and get an analysis back that comes very close to a $10,000 motion analysis that the elite big leaguers get. Wow. So it enables mom and dad who don't have big dollars to get, have their, you know, athlete kids get the same information and instruction that the elite guys do. So I think it's a good concept and it's doing very well. I think we're making a difference. It sounds like you are, Tom. And, and, uh, Parents should be uh, very interested in mustard. And uh, what's the website for mustard, Tom? Yeah, it's real easy. If they if they just went to Team Mustard, just like it sounds, T E A M, and then instead of spelling the whole word mustard out, it's M S T R D dot com. Gotcha. So Team Mustard dot com, and that'll kind of give you a peekaboo at what's going on. Okay, parents, check that out. It's definitely worth your while. Well, Tom House, I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us out here on Long Island. 
I wish you the best. How are you feeling, by the way? I'm holding my own. One of the Good. sidebars of having Parkinson's is we're trying to figure out how to, if not cure it, delay the symptoms. So, again, I'm, I battle the battle, but I look forward to waking up every day. And, Bill, I appreciate you having me on and allowing me to chit-chat about, you know, what I've been doing. Anytime I can hang out with you, I'll be glad to, okay? Sounds good, Tom. We'll get back to you and uh, talk to you down the road. Wish you the best of health, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Bill. Have a good night. That's Tom House, ladies and gentlemen. That'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Rick Dempsey and Tom House, my engineer, Brian Graves, and, of course, you guys for joining us. See you next on Sunday evening, September 17th. We're going to have Jerry Kramer and Bob Fox and also Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Felix Cavallari from the Young Rascals. Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue wishing you a good evening, folks. Views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.